My name's Kevin. I have the privilege of serving Christ as pastor of Sunrise in Ozark, Missouri, as well as uh, the department chair of biblical counseling in Springfield, Missouri at Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary. So my wife is a Texan, and so I just kind of, I have adopted Texas as my second home state, so love her for sure. Y'all did a good thing when, whatever y'all did, did a good thing. Let me pray for you. So Lord, we thank you for the time now that we can spend and just pray that you would uh, grant us, um, grant us an opportunity to think about anger and to think about it in a way that's helpful, uh, in a way that helps my brothers and sisters, not just counsel, but also be able to answer the question uh, from the exam. And we pray that you will receive the glory and the honor for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, since I'm off, let me make sure I know what time it is. 2.25. All right, thank you again for your patience. Let's, uh, we're talking about anger, and as you're aware, it's unique when the Bible says to be angry and sin not. All right, in my life at least, it seemed very difficult uh, to ever have any kind of anger that honored God. Um, and so there was a bit of learning uh, there was a learning curve for me personally, for sure, and my counselees, uh, just trying to figure out uh, what does and doesn't represent biblical anger. So let's talk through the fact that every person deals with anger. Right? There isn't anybody who doesn't, at times, struggle with anger. And why is that? Well, because we're all sinners. And as sinners... Uh, we are in the image of God. And as people who are in the image of God, God is an angry God. God, we both see and experience sin. We recognize there's sin against us, and at times we sin against other people. right? And all those reasons are reasons that uh, encourage us to be angry. And so it's something that for sure, almost any counselee you have at some point or another could talk about anger. I think it's insightful that most people who struggle with anger don't see themselves as strugglers. I think most of us, because of the way we define sin, and actually, let me just go to the next statement there. Secular definition is an emotion related to one's psychological interpretation of having been offended. And so, as they think about the fact they're offended... Most people, we talked about the characteristics of it. It would be something like, you know, somebody has done something that was a personal offense to me. And so since it is, I am justified to express myself. I'm justified to tell them what they did wrong, uh, tell them how it ought to be changed, to, to vent. Right? There's a sense in which I am passive. I am not choosing to be angry. What you did made me angry. Right? I didn't choose for you even to do it. You did it. And now I'm angry. What else do you expect? Um, because of what you did, this is my response. And so they, ev- they don't view the response. When we talk about the secular idea, they don't, review the, they don't view the response as either sinful or non-sinful. Right? They would say it's either helpful or not helpful. Right? A helpful anger response would be one that gets you what you want. Less pressure. You told somebody off, right? All the various components of maybe what you were hoping in anger. A non-helpful response would be you wreck your car in the process because you were tailgating him, right? So you were angry. You maybe had a right to be angry, but it was just not helpful. But, right, they don't have a category for sinful or non-sinful. And the help is really very, very pragmatic. About a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, it was... I had an activity in a Rotary Club. We had an activity late at night uh, at our city community center. And so I had been coaching football. We coached. It was dark by that point or right at dark, just essentially dark. Everybody needed to have their lights on. Uh, My son and I finished football. We were driving over to catch the end of this Rotary event because the rest of my family was doing that, representing us there. And so I went to turn into the the community center and as I made the turn uh, I saw this car right I mean just I turned right out in front of them they locked up their brakes 
Well, the person coming out of the community center was just that time of night where it was hard to see. They were sitting in the end. They were even in the wrong side of the lane, but it was so dark I couldn't tell which. I just thought I was just kind of turning around them. They're, it's not very lit. And so they're sitting in the wrong place. So now I'm stuck in the middle of the road. Somebody's slamming their brakes on to not hit me. This person backs up, gets out of the way. I drive back. I see this other person following me at a high rate of following, and they're just <laughs> right on my tail. Uh, it's a long driveway back to this uh, community center. So I had my tw- uh, 11-year-old. I said, hey, bub, just sit in the car. Because uh, when we either when we stop in our space, either they're just going to drive by and they just wanted to show they were angry or they'll stop. But if they stop, you know, I'm not sure what they'll do. So just be patient. And so we pulled in, stopped. They pulled in right b- beside us. And this lady, she probably maybe late 50s, early 60s, got out and she is ticked. And she starts hollering. She said, what are you trying to do, kill us? And my first response, I said, well, no, that wasn't on my agenda today to kill you or me. <laughs> right? That's, I mean, if it's an honest answer, if it's an honest question, I'll give you an honest answer. No, that's not my desire. Uh, and she said, what are you doing? And just going crazy, just ballistic. And, I, and, and by God's grace, I did not get angry. I said, well, ma'am, uh, when it's night, it's best to use your lights. Because she didn't have her lights on. Well, her husband had driven the car. They had gotten it fixed or oil changed or something. And so she always has the lights on auto. He had turned them to off. She didn't have any clue. She didn't have them on. And so she said, no, my lights are on. And she was just belligerent that they were on. And I said, she didn't turn her car off. I said, ma'am, come around the front of the car. And she gets around the front. And she sees they're off. And at that point, she's just totally humiliated. Because, what, she doesn't have a justification for being angry now. Right In the secular sense of being angry, because I had pulled in front of her, she had every right to jump in my face, to be belligerent, to be rude. Uh, then as soon as I pointed out her error, now it's on her. And so she just qu- got quiet, didn't say another word, and just went and sat in her car and just sat there. And so about that, my son saw what was going on. He got out and came around. And so I went to her door, and I said, ma'am, you know, just to be honest with you one more time, my intent was not to kill you or us. I, I don't know about you, but I enjoyed living. Uh, and I'm, I regret that it happened. I hope you have a great evening. She, and so we walked in because we had an activity. And she just kept sitting there. Right? There's this sense of now she's coming down from her anger with humiliation. Uh, probably a sense of shame, guilt, uh, possibly several things. But it's that idea of secular definition. It's an re- emotion related to psychological interpretation of you have offended me. You've done something I didn't like. And we all recognize people can be offended about absolutely anything. Right? Anger is justified in the broad picture. You can justify anger almost in any way you want. Uh, very, very easy. So that's the idea of what the, the world would say about it. Robert Jones, uh, who's written an excellent book on anger, he would say, Anger is our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. All right, let's just take this apart for a minute. Whole person, when he says that, he means the mind, the will, right? It's something that you've thought about, so it would engage your intellect, and something that you've chosen, it would engage what you, your affections, uh, and so your affections, your actions, all of it together uh, would be considered. And it says a whole person active response. By the word active, uh, it's something we do, not something we have. Right? So anger isn't like something that gets us. Right? We are not passive. Right? This sense of you did this and now anger caught me. No, it's, it's you've chosen it. Right? And so not everybody would... Uh, would foresee it that way and so it's an active response and by response it's just a a provocation right it's something something's happened so now this is what how we're responding to it of negative moral judgment what is that well it has a sense it's a judicial sense i am using the word is judgment we could say i'm using discernment to determine whether this is right or wrong right i am making a judgment a negative judgment is 
I oppose the perceived evil. Now, it could be your evil against me, like this lady saying, are you trying to kill me? Right? So she perceived I had evil. Uh, or it could be I see somebody else being sinned against, and I see the evil. And so it's a reaction against that particular evil. Uh, and again, so it's negative. We have opposition. And then against perceived evil, that could be accurate or inaccurate. And so this is a, a fairly pregnant definition, right? There's a whole lot of stuff going on in just these few words. Uh, but notice, if, let's compare the two. They're right next to each other in your notes. <coughs> notice how he says it's a whole person active response, but the secular world calls it what? Just simply an emotion related to a psychological interpretation. Both of them get us on the same path, but they have divergent or they have diversified means by what you, what's going on and what gets you there. And so anger, it, again, something we have to deal with, every one of us. What anger is not? Let's start there. Not all anger is sinful. Right, one extreme view of anger is that all anger is sinful. That's and and to be honest with you, I think at some point in my life prior to prior to being educated in the Bible, so I would say probably growing up before I got into at least seminary, I would have kind of thought in my mind that all anger is sinful. You know, I just growing up in the church, eh, anger isn't good for you. It must all be sinful. Boy, then you find these Bible verses, and it's like, oh, what what's this? You know, God's angry all the time. It's I mean that's. God's anger right now, Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation, or that's our word anger, every day. Well, so it must not all be sinful because we know God doesn't sin, right? Uh, or what about, what about Mark 3, uh, 5? In Mark 3, 5, it says, After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. So Christ was never angry. Christ was never angry about offenses to him personally. That's going to come in handy as we move through the rest of this idea. Uh, his anger was always directed toward those hurting other people or attacking God. And so here, Jesus, as an example, was angry. Uh, there are 20 different Hebrew words in the Old Testament. That refer to God's anger. Right again. That surprised me I think. When I first learned it. Um, what else? Well believers are commanded to be angry. Ephesians 4.26. Be angry. And yet do not sin. Do not to let the sun go down upon your anger. Believers ought to get angry. Especially about sin. The Bible's teaching us. That it's possible to be angry. And not sin. Now again. We may have a hard time believing that. We may have a hard time living consistent with it. One more note. This study should not be used to produce complacency on our part. Right? There's at some level, I know some people who get angry often, and they quote that. Well, the Bible says to be angry. Uh, yeah, but not your kind. Right? That's a, there's a godly angry, anger, and there's a non-godly, and I think yours maybe looks unbiblical. So what is anger then? Well, let's give a good working definition. This is my definition. Uh, my definition is a God-given emotion. And let me just pause here. I do believe it's an emotion. Right? It's a choice, but it's, a, it's an emotive choice. Uh, it's driven by thoughts, but it's still an emotion. It's a God-given emotion to help me solve problems biblically. Right? So it helps me get off of center. In fact, perhaps we could even say it this way. I like this even better, to be honest with you. A God-given energy, rather than saying emotion. A God-given energy to solve problems biblically. Uh, in fact, one of the words used for anger is also often translated energy. And so that's maybe a good way to think through it. <clears throat> it's this God-given Use. Uh, one Greek word for anger is energy. Another Greek word refers to anger, which is agitated, and the outward result is inward indignation. 
uh, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. It says that let that needs to be put away from you. Uh, and so there are some places where certainly it does need to be put away from us. Let's look at some examples of right use of anger. We have several in Galatians. That's, this is one of those that kind of sneaks in there and it's easy to forget about. In Galatians chapter 2, remember the story is Peter and Paul. Peter is at Antioch. Now, if you, you have to combine it. Uh, you have to combine it with Acts chapter 15 because that's, that's the narrative. But in Acts 15, remember Peter's at Antioch. And he's there, and he's hanging out with the Jews. Now, pardon me, he's hanging out with the Gentiles. Now, prior to this, remember, go back another couple of chapters in Acts. And he's, uh, remember, he's, he's waiting for his food, and he's resting, and this, he gets a vision from God, and this uh, sheet or cloth comes down, and there's all this unclean food on it. And, they, and the, in the vision, it says, eat. Peter's like, oh, I can't eat this. Recall, remember what I'm talking about? So he eats it, happens, and then the process of, he says, okay, this is what God calls clean, you can't call unclean. Then as soon as that happens, someone knocks on the door and says, hey, can you come and uh, heal this Gentile? Peter goes, in the process of being there, he says, listen, I've learned what God calls clean, you can't call unclean. So Peter, right, if, if you think about it in terms of a test, I'm at work at a seminary. If you think about it, pardon me, in that process, he passed the test. He got it right. But now he goes to Antioch. Things are fine. He's having a great time in Antioch. He's enjoying the believers, these new believers. He's enjoying everything going around. And James sent some Jews to just check on him, see how things are going with Peter. And when the Jews arrived, he is overwhelmed with fear of man. And so he starts only talking with the Jews and ignoring the Gentiles. The Jews are also insinuating, eh, you know, there may be some stuff here that these Gentiles aren't quite as good as we are. <clears throat> Maybe certainly issues of circumcision. There's these differences. And so as the story goes on, Paul gets there and sees that Peter's exclusion of the Gentiles, because Jews are there, is essentially... Uh, implying that the heresy that he's teaching about in Galatians is accurate, right? That there is a difference, that the Gentiles aren't the same, that they need to be circumcised. And so what we find in Galatians, it says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So Paul is angry. Why is Paul angry? He's angry because of the gospel, right? What Peter is doing is actually... Uh, encouraging heresy. And so because of that, he's angry at that. And so that's an example of right use. He's angry, and what I mentioned this a minute ago, right? It's a God-given emotion to help me solve problems. He's angry, and his anger was enough to confront him to the face. That doesn't mean he cursed him out, right? So when we think of confrontation, sometimes we think in terms of even unbiblical senses of confrontation. Paul didn't do that. Paul confronted him. Peter understood things were better. So it's a God-given emotion. You know, if you, if you think about it, right, if this is sitting, if this water bottle sitting here, and it's kind of balanced, this is a little edge right here, it's kind of balanced, right? Anger is supposed to be enough to basically get you off center, right? It moves you the right direction, and then anger can be released. It's done. Because now you're moving toward a biblical solution. Right? So if you just think if you're, if you're in a neutral position, anger is enough just to get you over the edge. Right? So hopefully in a godly way toward godliness. And so we recognize it in Galatians 2. In 2 Samuel 12, well, this is a fascinating one, isn't it? Because in 2 Samuel 12, in that story... Uh, remember, Nathan comes to confront David. And when he comes to confront him, he essentially is talking about there's this man that's got this, he's a rich man and a poor man, and the guy comes over and they need a sacrifice or they need something to eat, a lamb, for the, his company. 
Verse 5, and so he said he went and he took the poor man's. He only had one and he took it. Verse 5, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He's, that is godly anger. He heard the problem. He appropriately resolved to, re, he appropriately determined to resolve the problem. Well, and as you know, right, God allowed his actual godly anger to be flipped so that it actually turned into conviction. Hey, David, you're the man. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, so in John 2, another example of this kind of anger. John 2.13, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Now, I'll be honest. If this story was about Kevin, I don't think he could. you could write this and it would stay godly, righteous anger. Because if I'm not careful, I would turn into, it would flip into ungodly anger. But Jesus did it appropriately. Right? The anger was what? He was recognized this was done against God. It was against the temple. It was against the law. And they were Pharisees. They were not true believers. And so Jesus drove them out of the temple. But it was the anger that motivated him. A God-given energy to solve problems biblically. All right, then the final, final stories in 1 Samuel. We went new, old, new, old. In 1 Samuel 11, it's the story of the children of Israel. And there's several verses. We, our verse 6 is the one we're going to look at. But it says, Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, Say, On this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach to all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. And told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles and people, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Now notice, then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news. And his anger was greatly aroused. Right, so he heard the sin, he heard the challenge. They were challenging God, challenging the people. This was an issue of God's uh, character and for his people. And so he was appropriately angered. And if you remember, he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel, uh, those small pieces. And he basically says, hey, let's go to battle. They go to battle and they, they uh, appropriately win, right? They're on God's side here. So that's an example of the right use of anger. Uh, so anger is sinful when, and I've got four things to, for you to think through. Anger is sinful when it's sinfully or selfishly motivated. Whenever it's motivated by a loss of my rights, my way, my opinion. Basically, I'm going to get my pound of flesh. Right? That's lady that followed me into the OC the other day. The fact that she was angry. Right, Her anger wasn't, be, wasn't against sin. It was because I pulled out in front of her and she got scared. That's selfishly motivated. It's a sinful motivation. Uh, in John 2 verse 17, it says, Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That's Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, 23, right? That's for his house. So when it came to an issue related to God, he was angry. In 1 Peter 2, 23, when we think about Christ, it says, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So, when Jesus, the examples of Jesus being angry, all related to people who sinned, people who were being sinned against, I should say, pardon me, and when they were sinning against God. But when it came time for them to, to serve Jesus, when they sinned against Jesus, whether it's in Isaiah 53 or in the passage I was talking about, 1 Peter 2, you never see Jesus get angry because they're sinning against him. Right? So Jesus doesn't, there is no example of Jesus uh, where at a loss of his own rights, he became angry. So I think that's very helpful. Uh, if our primary concern is love of self, it's sinful. Right? It's the heart of pride. What else? When God's goal in the matter is distorted. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if in the process of being angry, you no longer are glorifying God, then it's sinful anger. Because you've not been consistent with God's goal. Romans 8, 28 and 29 is listed there, right? All things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. Those whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So that we might be the firstborn among his creatures. So if in the process of being angry, you circumvent the process, you circumvent that God's trying to grow you to be like Christ, and instead you are sinfully, sinfully uh, acting, then we would say that's sinful anger. You can jot down other passages like James. Uh, remember in James chapter 1, when it says, count it pure joy when you fall into various trials. That's the word perosmos, they're pressured-filled circumstances. For the trying of your faith works patience. Only let patience have its finished work so that you'll be perfect, complete, and entire, wanting nothing or having all your pieces together. What is that passage saying? In the process of going through a perosmos or a pressured-filled circumstance, we respond joyfully, allowing the pressure to build our spiritual muscles. Right As it pushes down on us, we grow in endurance. And as we grow in endurance, we get spiritual character. We get what God's desiring to grow in us. But if in the process of that pressure, we get angry, and instead of being patient, we're impatient. Instead of allowing God to grow us in our character, we respond in some sinful way. Then at that point, the God's goal is distorted, and it's not godly anger. Right? So when God's, ang when God's goal in the matter is distorted, it's sinful. Here's... Here's the third thing. When anger is allowed to linger, it's sinful. When anger is allowed to linger, it says, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Uh, in Ephesians 5, pardon me, Ephesians 4, verse 26, verses 26 and 27. Um, I know... I'm, That's a great question. I'm getting ready to explain that. So whoever asked that, could you are on the you are on the exact right track. So excellent question. We have a limit of just one question. So then that makes her angry. So see now we got to figure out what are we going to do. Yes, ma'am. Well, we always love ourselves. I mean, right? That's a the fundamental part of sin is that we have this growing sense of loving self. But in, the, but in, a, in a particular moment, what's motivating us? What's driving us? Right? So there's this underlying current. God is redeeming us from loving ourselves all the time. But what's motivating us? What's motivating my anger in this moment? Is it because I perceive I've been something? It's on my nerves. It's offended me. I'm the one that's the one that's bugged here. Or is it someone else has been sinned against? God's not been honored, right? So the question is, it's the broad sense of what's motivating me. Is it sin against others, sin against God? Or is it just you pulled out in front of me? You didn't say hi to me when you were walking down the hallway. Uh, you were noisy when I asked you not to be noisy. If you're thinking about all the things that can happen in a home. So it's the, it's the object that's driving it. Is it against me? 
or it's against God and other people. So even though there is that underlying low-grade temp- low temperature of love of self all the time that we're trying to re- God's trying to redeem in us. Uh, so I haven't forgotten the other question. We will get to that. In Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Okay, when it says do not let the sun go down on your wrath, is an excellent question. Is that a literal sun? <clears throat> so, if, if we get angry at 8 o'clock tonight, then I have till tomorrow at 8. Right? Or I have tomorrow at 6.30 or whenever it gets dark because, right, I just get all the way until then. Basically, the text is saying do it in today's cycle. Right? You do it as not literal. Right? I've had some couples come in for counseling. They said, man, we've got to get help. We've been up two nights. Uh, we're angry at each other. The Bible says don't, don't let the sun go down. We've not really slept. That's not what it's saying. In fact, I tell couples, if it's late at night and you get in a big tiff, you put it all under the blood. You say, you know what? We're going to deal with this tomorrow. We're going to pray about it, think about it, and until tomorrow, we're just going to choose to love each other as if this isn't a problem. And we're going to come back to it tomorrow. Go to, go to sleep. Enjoy uh, God's grace that you can sleep with your spouse. And in the morning when your heart is fresh, deal with it. Right? Why? Because the issue is you want it in the cycle. Right? So don't let the sun, the, si- the sun is basically the 24-hour cycle. So don't let something extend past what it's natural to extend past without dealing with it. See, I would argue that if you say, this is all covered by the atonement, so therefore we're going to deal with this tomorrow, in my mind, you are dealing with it. You've not gotten to the core of it yet. But you have said by the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, we're going to uh, basically live as if this, been de- as this is finished. So uh, the goal is, is the sun shouldn't keep coming up and you still being angry, right? So get it done in today's cycle. When we talk about the four rules of communication, this verse we often use for which one? Remember? Anybody remember? All right, keep current, right? So when we talk people through the four rules of communication, this is the, the first one is be honest. The second one is keep current. Deal with it today. One, because a failure to deal with it is verse 27. It opens the door for the devil. Because you're given an opportunity for a place of bitterness. And so Ephesians 4, I think, so we don't let it linger. Uh, the slow freeze. What are we talking about? Well, this says, I don't like to have you around. I don't like you as a person. Uh, I'm just kind of put out by you uh, so it's not like i'm going to deal with it and i'm not really even going to deal with you i'm just going to kind of say i'm done with you right you're letting it linger it's it's motivating you uh to say i'm tired of this <clears throat> you know one of the reasons often discipline fails in the home is because a parent disciplines and let's say the discipline went fine it was godly in fact godly anger that motivated appropriate discipline but then after the discipline the parents' continued anger just says, you know, that you buck me. I've had parents tell me, I don't like being a parent. I don't like my children. I don't enjoy them. They get in my way. They're hard. They, I, they, they're just tough. Uh, sometimes grounding does the same thing. Because you may say, okay, you're going to be grounded. That was the initial issue. But because the grounding, let's say it's a week or a week and a half or just a day, whatever, it can linger, and it often allows the anger to linger with it, especially a parent who's having to say no to stuff they want to do because they have to stay around and enforce this grounding issue. And so now you have additional anger. So the slow freeze would be an example of just this allowing it to linger. It just dribbles on. The third thing is First John 3.17. Uh, that would be against the slow freeze. Right? It says, but whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in needs and shuts his heart up from him, How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we can't, the slow freeze violates the idea of 1 John 3, 17. Uh, Here's the fourth reason. When it attacks the person instead of the problem. That's another one of those four rules of communication. Remember in Ephesians 4, 15, it says there, what you say needs to be said in love. Truth and love. Uh, if you think about what is truth and love, 
right, if we just use some simple illustrations. One way to think about truth and love is truth. John Broger said it this way. Truth without love is like doing surgery without any kind of anesthesia. Right? We, don't, we give anesthesia for a reason. Had a dear girl in our church in the last two weeks. Uh, they gave her an epidural and, and they just messed it up. Whatever, whatever happened, the epidural was not working. The baby went into stress. They had to rush her into a C-section. For, to save the life of the baby. And the epidural was absolutely useless. So right, the ladies in here already get what's going on. I mean, she felt 100% of it. Right? It was a disaster. Uh, that's like truth without love. Right? When somebody says, you know, I may not, I maybe shouldn't say it this way. I'm just going to tell you that when you're thinking in your mind, I just have to say this. That's when you ought to say, I don't need to say anything. Because at that point, you've not put it in love. Uh, how many of you just chew aspirin in your mouth? Nobody in the room. Did you know they're effective? You can put it under your tongue, and it'll get in your bloodstream quicker than if you get it in your stomach. Well, why don't you do it? Because who wants that taste, right? It's bitter. It's horrible. No one wants to taste aspirin. Coated aspirin is like kind of God's grace, isn't it? <laughs> Right? Why do they put a coating around aspirin and all kinds of medicines? Because it's got to get past the taste buds to where it can actually do better good. Right? That's truth and love. Right? Love is the coating that allows truth to get down into the crevices where it needs to go. Right? So it gets down to the depths of the heart. Well, first uh, Ephesians 4.15 says truth and love. Ephesians 4.29 says it this way. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So anger is energy given by God to attack problems, not people. When it's sinfully used, it attacks people. And then the energy God's given you is wasted. Right? When you look at somebody and say, you know, you're the stupidest person I've ever been around. Now, there may be some sense of truth to that, right? We don't know. Certainly, it's your evaluation. But the fact that you changed the topic, you left the issue, and now there's a new issue. You believe I'm stupid, right? You've used God-given energy, and you've transitioned it to now you're attacking a problem. You always do that, right? That's not a, probably a, it's not true ever, is it? It's, right, a use of... Complete word to talk about complete words, right? It's never true that it's always true. It's so when some you never do that. That's typically those things aren't true. So you've now attacked the person. That's sinful anger rather than dealing with the problem. So that's when it's sinful. So how does sinful anger look? How does sinful anger look? Okay. Well, sinful anger is expressed. One way is by blowing up. By blowing up. Reacting, attacking this individual. Sometimes we use... Uh, I've been in counseling for a long time. Back in the day, they always talked about Mount St. Helen. Right? At this point, that's a, some of us that have gray, gray in our hair. That makes a little bit better sense. Remember, it's the, it's the volcano. Right? It's the thing that it's, it blows up. You've been, or I think probably you've been around people like that. Um, this is recorded, so I can't say who this is. But there's somebody very, very close to me. Um, that this individual just was a volcano. And you never knew what lit it. We'd go out to a restaurant. Is it going to be that the food wasn't right? The server was rude? The temperature wasn't right. The music was too loud. You just never knew. You'd be at a store, and just all of a sudden, this person is blowing up, spewing everywhere. And it was miserable for everybody. Why? Because he had sinful anger. It just seemed like it was just constantly ready to blow up. And when it blew up, you, no one wanted to be around him. I certainly didn't. I mean, him or her, whatever it is, right? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> but you don't know who the he is, so, um, so yeah, you will not know. 
what does that look like? Well, sometimes cutting words, like I hate you, right? That'd be blowing up. I wish you had never been born, a parent might tell a child. Uh, I want a divorce. Something like, you're stupid. And, of course, we could use expletives. You understand. It's, I'm keeping them clean. Uh, it's energy released toward people or things. It's intimidating statements. If you ever do that again, I'll something else. Sometimes loss of control physically would be blowing up. Um, I have a friend who, every time I speak on anger, I can't help but think about him. He's broken his hand. Why? Because he hit a wall. Right? Stupid. Why would you hit a wall? Right? That doesn't make sense. Uh, we'll talk about that more in just a second, too. But it's just, it's kind of funny. So it's loss of control physically. Right? I've seen stuff broken uh, in counseling, even. Some people get angry like that, and it can be crazy. So blowing up. Here's the second one, clamming up. These are the two extremes, right, if we're going to use extremes. Blowing up is one level. Clamming up is on the other level. What is clamming up? Well, I would say clamming up would be the Ephesians 4 that we talked about just a second ago, where you're not deal, dealing with it in today's cycle. You just choose to not talk about it at all. So you stew over it. You hurt me. Uh, you have a pity party. You become bitter. It begins to captivate your mind. How could this happen to me? If it's internal, right, if you point it inwardly, it could be all about you. How could this happen to me? I'm no good. Uh, even sometimes people would say, you know, just as stupid as I am, I deserve this kind of thing. It's still an anger that's churning, but it's an internal. Sometimes it's not an internal anger. It's a self-righteous internal, and it's pointed external, but it's never spoken. Right? So they see some, I just hate being around them. They're such a hypocrite. They're all godly on the outside, but I remember they didn't talk to me last week, or they didn't invite me to sit with them, or they didn't ask me to go out to eat, or uh, whatever it is, and it's this constant thing. Man, if you are around in counseling, uh, I call these people historians, right? You've, if you push the right button, ask the right data question, they, it's uncanny the level of detail they remember. And they've got everything, and they can click them off thing after thing, bullet point. A thesis. A good friend of mine was counseling, and somebody brought in a book this thick, single space. And they had been keeping this book of wrongs the spouse had done against them. Single space, typed out, these are the problems. Right, that's a clamor. Right, that's a... Remember one time we were driving... We were driving to, uh, from Springfield, Missouri. We live in Ozark, just a couple minutes south. The college is in Springfield. So we're driving from Springfield to Des Moines. That's about a six-hour trip in that range. And so we get to Kansas City, which is about halfway, almost just outside of Kansas City to the It's not hardly said a word the whole trip. And I don't know what's going on. I wasn't sure if she's clammed up, right, because I'm a counselor. I'm thinking something's wrong. Normally, she's a talker, so there's just something going on here. And I, it was just the two of us. The kids weren't with us. And I said, you know, we've got three hours to Des Moines. And whatever's going on in your mind that's keeping you from speaking, by Des Moines, we're going to have dealt with it. So whatever, whenever you want to start talking. But we've got it. She talked all the way to Des Moines. <laughs> and it wasn't just talking, right? So she is the whole bit. She wasn't angry, wasn't an issue of anger, but I perceived it as it could be, right? Because people give the silent treatment. That'd be clamming up, just staring out the window, right? I can drive the next, you drive the next hour, and I'm just going to look out the window. And, right, you act like you're going to, right, they call back, don't touch me, right? There's a line here. We go back to Chids, right? <laughs> There's a line, and you're not supposed to cross it. I remember one time in counseling, talking about a clamor. Uh, this girl, I'm, this guy and girl, I'm doing the premarital. And I can tell she's stewing, and that's on my notes here. It affects the body, right? The face gets flushed. There's a knot in the stomach. The appetite's affected. Sleep is uh, affected. They may have clenched fists, or they grind their teeth. They're restless, right? They're uh, just all these various elements that are part of it. This girl's sitting there, and I can tell there's something dramatically wrong. She's not saying a word. But there's something dramatically wrong. This is not normal. And I said something to her. I almost did say her name. That would be bad. 
I said something to her. I said, hey, tell me what's going on here. Uh, and she said, I can't believe he's not noticed it. And I said, notice what? I hadn't either, right? I'm ignorant. He's ignorant. We're both ignorant. <laughs> notice what? And she said, when we sat down today, I put my purse between our seats. We've dated in forever how many, I think it's a year. We've dated for that long, and I have never put anything between us physically. Well, he missed it. I missed it, right? I'm the, I'm the trained counselor. I've done this for years. And I missed that the purse was a, that was a major problem. And so I'm just dying laughing on the inside, thinking this is great. Dude, I hope you're paying attention. Do you want to marry this? That's what I'm really thinking. Uh, are you sure? Uh, they did get married. And great friends. They've been married a long time. I'm just dying laughing because she's clamming up. Right? That's the way. Right? So sometimes it's blowing up. Sometimes it's clamming up. But they're both sinful anger. Right? So what's another one? Uh, by attacking a substitute instead of the problem. Right, that can, that can happen at times too. Uh, you pick something else that you want to be angry at, a less threatening option. Uh, now, it may be a cat or a dog, right? So you, if you're angry at your spouse, you may end up kicking the cat. And I hate this cat. There's hair everywhere, and you're just going ballistic at this cat. And the wife's like, where did this come from? Well, you're, just not, you're not really saying what you're angry about. Could be another person. Uh, could be a child does something close to dad, what dad's done, or does something close to what mom did, and now the parent just goes ballistic. I can't believe you need to grow up and be a responsible adult. You can't act this way and lecturing a child, but mom or dad's the one that needs to hear it, right? So it's a you attack a substitute. So this poor kid's getting it when really she or he's meaning to give it to the other spouse. Um, or the next one would be by denying it, right? I'm, are you angry? No, I'm not angry. <laughs> well, okay. Thank, uh, right? So they pretend like they're not angry. You ask them, maybe they don't even say it in a mean voice. You just, are you angry? No. I'm, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And they can maybe even say it in a nice voice, but yet they're still angry, right? That would be sinful anger. Um, the final one. Is just any response in direct contradiction of the fruit of the Spirit. Right? So if you're responding in a way that isn't consistent with the fruit of the Spirit, then then that is that's not godly in the way it's being expressed. So what are some steps then to handling sinful anger? What are steps to handling sinful anger? I've got a several for you. Here's number one. Recognize, admit, confess, ultimately what? Repent of your sinful anger. What do you confess? Well, my wrong goal in anger. You know, I've been angry and my goal was to get even. My goal was to make sure you knew how much you ticked me off. My goal, basically it wasn't restoration it wasn't helping god be honored in this circumstance it wasn't helping some somewhere where there was injustice so we recognize admit and confess our anger maybe the wrongness of my anger right think about how often people say you know i maybe they say you know i just i blew up i shouldn't have blown up uh However, you shouldn't have done that. What is it? That's an excuse. So that's really a blame shift. When instead of saying, not only did I have a wrong goal, but the fact is I had no excuse to respond the way I did. Right? So that's the wrongness of my anger. Uh, in the process of repentance, I may need to get other people to help me. I may need to get the attention of an accountability partner. Somebody may need to go to counseling, but right, counseling, discipleship, conversational ministry could happen anywhere, formal, informal. I may need to call somebody 
to talk to him. Uh, in the process, you have to confess to God and confess to the appropriate people. Remember what Proverbs 28 says? It says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Right? So it may be appropriate uh, for them to confess and to get help. For sure, we want to do appropriate self-counsel. Now, what do we mean by self-counsel? Well, self-counsel, the way I define it, is anytime you take God's word and you use it to examine your heart, your thoughts, your motivations, and your actions, your attitude, all those various components, right? So self-counsel is taking the same thing we would do with somebody and instead we do it to ourselves. And so that's what we mean here by self-counsel. Some people might call it a self-improvement project. There's various ways to, to say that. You're basically wanting to say, okay, what's going on in my heart? Now, there's a couple of key verses here. Uh, I'll just give here one or two. I love the Galatians 6 passage because it says it very specifically. It says, but let each one, what? Examine, prove his own work. Right? So you test what's going on in my own mind, in my own life, uh, to see if, in fact, this honors God or not. Uh, Lots of verses that speak to that. Philippians 1 has... I want to abound in love more and more, growing in knowledge and in all discernment so that I can test to see what's excellent. Test to see, is this appropriate or not? How about the 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves as to whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. So it's the idea, of course, that's in the faith. uh, But in relationship to any personal sin, we should carefully check our own life and our hearts. So what are some ways we can do that? Well, look at these questions that are very helpful when it comes to anger. When and where do you find yourself getting angry most frequently? What is your typical response when you're angry? If you could change your initial response to trying circumstances in your inner man and outer man, what would that look like? Right. So now just think about the logic of what we're asking here. Number four. How much do you sense anger is really a problem in your life? Have you considered your anger in light of God's word? So essentially, in those personal interaction questions, you're saying, okay, where do you typically, when and where, that's journalistic questions, when and where, what's the typical response? If you could change that response, what would the change look like? And then, how much is this a problem? And that's helpful, right? It gives somebody time to reflect on it, think about it. Look at some practical questions here. One, do you get angry about the right things? Remember, the right things would be sin against others, not honoring God. It's the first and second great commandment, right? That's the easiest way to define it. If I get angry when somebody breaks the first great commandment, I get angry when somebody breaks the second great commandment. Do you handle anger in the right way? Which means, are you being godly? Number three, how long does your anger last? Right, I, I tell counselors this, anger has a very, very, very short shelf life. Right, it just can't sit there long. The expiration dates, it's almost always immediate. Right, if you're angry long, it's going to move into sinful anger. So it can't last long. How controlled is it? If it's out of control, then that breaks the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Galatians 6, think about verses 1 through 5. When you see someone caught in sin, you who are spiritual, restore. The word restore means to bring back to a place of usefulness. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of, depending on which translation you have, meekness or self-control. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. So even if you say, but my goal is right, my goal is to restore. If you restore out of control, it's still sinful anger. So you can have the right goal, but do it the wrong way. Number five, what motivates your anger? Now, that is the goal question. Are you wanting them to know how ticked off you are? Are you wanting them to know how frustrated it makes you? Are you wanting them to know this is how hurt I am? Right? What are you wanting to actually communicate? Or is your goal that they'll love Jesus and people better, that they'll be more faithful, that they'll follow? So what motivates? Number six. Is your anger primed and ready 
to respond to another person's habitual sins. Right? Is that just something where you have a short trigger? Every, almost every list of vices Paul makes, when he's comparing them and exhorting us to do better, almost on every one of those lists, it says to be long-tempered, to have perseverance, to be patient. So if you have a short trigger, right, that maybe in today's political quarter, we shouldn't even be talking like this, right? So, but if you're primed and ready, which just means there's some people say, you know, boy, that trigger, that's a very careful trigger if you've done much with guns. If you have an easy trigger, I'm from the country. I've done a lot with guns. So uh, my son, he's my, all my kids, but my son that's 15, my 13-year-old, they'll just grab a gun and go outside and shoot. I mean, that's, we live out in the country. That's just, that's fun where we are. Uh, we're not shooting at people. So, <laughs> but don't bring any stray cats around because my kids, <laughs> my kids, not their dad, of course, just my children. I have to get on them for it. I'm just playing. Uh, uh, but on armadillo, it's dead. And I, I pay them for armadillos. So if your anger's primed and ready, right? If you're always ready to just go on the offense, uh, then that's probably sinful anger. And here's number seven. What is the effect of your anger? Are people repenting? Are people changing? Or are, in fact, what you're typically doing, you're left stewing and someone else is left angry too? Then probably you've not handled it well. Uh, not that you can't guarantee their response, but if on... When I ask what's the effect, that's the long-term continual, right? Are your children exasperated, if we use the, the Colossians and Ephesians connection? Um, am I provoking other people? So the first one, recognize, admit, confess, and repent. That's the first way to deal with it. Second, see God in the trial. Help them to understand that there are ways that are things beyond their control. But they can still have trust that God is in control and that, he, that his plans are designed to grow us in Christ's likeness. Oh, these are great passages. And we're going to, in the next couple of things, we're going to have to do them pretty quick here. Uh, just because I did start us late. So I may take us just a minute or two into overtime just because I don't, I don't want you to miss some of this. But Genesis 50, remember what's the story? Joseph, right? Excellent. So Joseph is going, at Genesis 50, what happens? Uh, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He saw, God, he saw God in the trial. Romans 8, 28 and 29. It's good because God is using it in verse 29 to help us become more like Christ. We see God in the middle of it. James 1, 2 through 4. We count it pure joy because we know God is using this parosmos, which is our word for trial or temptation. The word means, in fact, you can write down, Pressured, filled circumstances. That's what the word means. A trial in places because it's going through the pressure that helps you grow. But it's the same word. So, pressured, filled circumstances God brings in order to help us to be more like Christ. So that is seeing God in those trials. Number three, make room for God's wrath. In Genesis 50, what? Joseph didn't deal with his brothers in a way that was sinful. He allowed God to deal with it. He says, I'm not going to be the one that has to, that, that uh, enacts vengeance. In Romans 12, 19, there it says, uh, I'll make sure it's the right verse I'm reading. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to anger. That's God's anger. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you've got to let God deal with it. James 1, 19 and 20. What's he say in verse, in fact, in verse 19, you just want to contextually look at that. That's not primarily, by application, you can apply it to people. But verse 19 is primarily exegetically about our relationship with God. When it says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's not talking about your neighbor, your spouse, your children, your boss. By application, we can apply it there. But it's saying, so in, when you're frustrated in a trial, a parosmos, don't be so quick to be angry at God, to speak out against God, and to not listen to God. Very next verse says, For the anger of man 
does not produce the righteousness God requires or God desires. God is trying to produce in you something good. And so let God do his work. Your anger doesn't produce God's kind of righteousness. Now, it'll produce something. You get angry at your spouse, it'll produce something. But it won't produce what God's wanting to produce. All right, letter D. I will not play God in seeking personal vengeance or justice. That's making room for God's wrath. All right, number four. Return good for what you think is evil. Ah, we got our two stories back again, don't we? There's, there's uh, Joseph. And so he is kind to his brothers. Very, very, very kind to his brothers, everybody. He's loving. Romans 12, 21, what is that? Romans 12, 21 says, it's right in front of me. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right, that's the issue here is, hey, don't, if, if, they've, served, they've, if they've sinned against you, be kind. I, I hope that's what I was doing for that lady. When I said, when I walked her, when she sat in her car and I walked around to her car and just stood and talked to her for a minute. Ma'am, I certainly didn't want to kill you tonight. I hope you have a great night. Right, I hope this hadn't ruined your evening. What am I doing? I'm returning good for evil. No reason to be elevated where she is. Uh. Texas has been this way for a long time. In, in Missouri, they just finally changed the law. You could always conceal carry, but now they've changed it to where open can, where everybody in the state can conceal carry anytime. So it's just, uh, unless there's a federal reason you can't, state law opens the door to that. The only negative with that is that it gives, in my opinion, it gives a shorter window for some immature and irresponsible people that return evil for evil too quick, right? There's, a, there's something to have a, a perseverance. So you want to return good for what you think is evil, not be quick to return evil for evil. All right, number five. A way to handle it is communicate to solve the problem. Communicate to solve the problem. Use the four rules of communication. I mentioned that a minute ago. No one in here had a clue what I was talking about, right? Anybody know them? All right, jot these down. I don't have them in your notes, but so I'll give them to you real quick. Number one is Ephesians 4, verse 25. It's speak the truth. Speak the truth. Number two is verses 26 and 27. It's a, uh, stay current. Number three is verse 29 and 30. It's attack the problem, not the person. And number four is verses 31 and 32. And it's act, don't react. Act means what? Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, or gracing. What is reacting? Let all anger, wrath, bitterness, clamor, evil speaking... With all malice, be put away from you. So that's reacting, not acting. So those are the four rules of communication. Communicate using those rules. Another one is ask yourself key questions. Is my timing right? You might circle that one. That is so imperative. Sometimes you may have the right motive and everything else, but the timing's just horrible. Right? If the timing's wrong, then it's wrong. Do I have my facts right? Is my attitude right? Have I prayed? And are my words loving? You could add to that. Let me give you one more question. Because uh, it's in here, but I'd rather make it overt. Am I motivated right? right? What motivates my anger? All right, number six. Act to solve your part of the problem. Act to solve your part of the problem. Romans twelve eighteen says, If it's possible... As much as lies in you, live peaceably, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Right? Your goal should be to respond as God's kind of person. Your responsibility is not necessary to be able to resolve the entire situation, but you should reflect Christ's likeness in your personal response, whatever that personal response is. Okay, let me, I'm just going to give you, I told you we were going to go into overtime one minute, so right now we just hit time's up. And so we're not in overtime yet, so I may still get out before. 
Because I think 25, right? Yeah, we're right on the nose. Okay, look at this. This is a great journal assignment you can give a counselee. It's by David Pallison. It's using his work. There are eight major portions. Number one, what are my circumstances? What led me to be angry? What happened to provoke me? Number two, how did I react? What did I do? Number three, what are my motives? Number four, what are the consequences? Those first four, that is really where we often get caught in what Dave would say, a circle, a vicious circle of folly. That's why you need part five. What is God's opinion? You need something to break the cycle. What, do I, what is true? What do I know about? And I've given you all kinds of questions here. Number seven, how can I turn to God for help? You need to do that. Numbers, that's six, pardon me. I said I was from Kentucky. I can't count. <laughs> Number seven, how should I respond in this situation to glorify God? You need to do that. And then finally, number eight, what are the consequences of faith and obedience? Now, this assignment, if you assign it for several weeks in a row, it can really help somebody begin to, to piece out and to parcel out what's going on here in my anger. And so help them with it. Help them assign. Maybe you just give them the first four questions initially. Then you introduce part five. And then you introduce six through eight. So it may be a several-week assignment. But as you minister to them and help them think through it, it can turn out to be very insightful. And I think I've given you maybe another page or two, possibly. I don't know. Okay, that's all. All right. I didn't know if I gave you any more assignments or not. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters, their patience even with me getting started late. Uh, pray that you'd be honored in the rest of our day as we try to assimilate this information and serve your children well. It's hard to believe you even trust us to serve your children. We, are, we speak your words with your energy. We're grateful for that. Please help us do it in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.